Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Thanks for supporting the Fable and Folly Network. Here's another show we know you'll love. In a world of covert culinary criminal coalitions. Jean-Carlo. We chef. Reformed criminal and celebrity chef Butch Orson. Prepare the brigade. We chef. Is dragged back into the dark realm of criminal kitchens. Behind. When old rivals threaten his life's work. Corner. Butch is brought back. Hot. No, 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 no. For one. Last. Cook. Open Pandora's oven. Yes, Chef! John Wick meets Hell's Kitchen in Yes, Chef, a comedic actual play adventure of kooky culinary combat, refried revenge, and untold gastronomic horrors. Yes, Chef is out now on the Dungeons and Drimbus podcast feed. Butchie! A genuine pleasure to see ya. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. This week, we have a story for you about marriage and murder. But before we get to snitching appendages, I want to take a moment to say thanks to our newest patrons, Tara, Jess, Evie, Queen Cam, Crystal, and Ashaya. If you'd like to help us pay a living wage to everyone who works to bring these stories to you and enjoy ad-free episodes, just go to nightlightpod.com legion to join the Nightlight Legion and get a shout-out on the podcast, plus occasional bonus content. You can also make a one-time donation to support us at nightlightpod.com donate. And don't forget, Nightlight merch is available, and you can support us by sporting Nightlight-branded gear. Just go to merch.nightlightpod.com to get your t-shirts, hoodies, notebooks, and more. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy The Stolen Arm, written by Scott Adlerberg and narrated by Jarvis Bailey. From alongside the bathtub, kneeling over its edge, the man leaned into his work. It was difficult going. He would have preferred to use a chainsaw, but the sound of its engine might have told his neighbors and any passers-by that something unusual was happening inside. So instead, he had recently bought a hacksaw with fine, razor-sharp teeth. It did the job well, but in order to cut cleanly, he had to exert himself, strain his withered muscles. And the sad thing was, the fact remained that he loathed doing strenuous exercise. He rarely jogged or played sports or, as his wife used to say, wrote with the discipline and concentration a good writer needs. Mary had said those words to him, often. He'd argued with her frequently, insisting she was wrong, but in his heart, he knew that her criticisms of his sloppy writing habits had been accurate. 
Was that why he'd surrendered to impulse and put cyanide in her tea this morning? Or had he killed her because her novels sold well, with the critics' blessings, while he was lucky if his stories got accepted by non-paying online publications that were perhaps seen by half a dozen relatives of the site owner? Since buying cyanide capsules on a euthanasia-oriented website, he'd been hiding the pills inside a shoe in his closet, and until today, he hadn't been planning to ever actually use them. At least, that's what he'd been telling himself. You drink too much, you goof off watching movies, you complain about the blindness of publishers, but then you don't write for months on end. You need to get off your ass. Whatever talent you have, and I think you have plenty, you're squandering it. The man grimaced as he recalled her words. To this day, he could feel their sting, the cruelty that had come from a woman he loved. He stood up, hacksaw in hand, and stretched his legs so they wouldn't cramp. Tied around his middle, his jeans and undershirt was streaked with crimson, and he felt queasy with sweat and nausea. He promised himself that when he finished this task and established a more focused writing routine, he would go on a diet, lose the rolls of fat under his arms and around his middle. At the same time, he would stop his liquor intake. Whenever he passed a mirror, it distressed him to see his reddened nose, vein-scarred eyes, and sunken cheeks. To behold the gray tufts of hair on his scalp, to look at the wrinkles around his mouth, was to understand why Mary had told her family he'd been a handsome man who had let himself go to seed. He shut his eyes and took a deep breath. He could taste salt on his tongue. Knees cracking, he dropped to the floor again, and he stared into the tub. His wife, even in death, looked alluring. Her lips remained full and sensuous. Her nose was a cute button. Her black hair was fanned out around her shoulders. The demon that had driven her to work like a madwoman, that had seemed during her life to make her glow with a creative power, kept her skin radiant now. She'd been so single-minded, so dedicated to her craft. He remembered the countless days she'd sat in her study, writing in longhand while he, at the laptop in his den, sat muttering before his perpetual novel in progress, a flask of gin or red wine in his hand. Don't worry, dear. I'll inherit your royalties, he said aloud. I'll sign that film rights deal on your desk. With his right hand, he squeezed the hacksaw's handle. With his left, he gripped the top of its steel frame. He clenched his teeth, blinked twice and extended his arms. The odor in the room was vile. And it was amazing, he thought, how much you could reduce a human being. Here he was capable of killing a person, his wife no less, and cutting her into pieces for her burial. From outside the bathroom, near the closed door, came a scraping sound. He jumped to his feet and heard a ferocious bark. It was Webster. The dog must have smelled the raw flesh and come running. It's all right, Webster. Easy boy. I'll be out to feed you in a minute. He bent down and continued sawing. I hope I have plastic bags, he thought. They should be under the sink in the kitchen. I told her to buy a box of them yesterday. The dog started rubbing its claws against the door. 
At first he ignored the noise, but soon it began to annoy him. It was a grating sound, almost as bad as fingernails on a chalkboard. And every time the dog's claws scratched the wooden door, they seemed to pluck at his nerves also, stretching them out till they were about to pop. Webster, that's enough! Please, boy, I'll be right out! The dog obeyed. The chafing sound ceased. The man shivered, neck hairs prickling, ice in his veins, and returned to work. It struck him as weird that Webster had listened to him and quit so easily. Didn't matter. His wife's head and right arm had to come off, and then he'd be finished. But the moment he cut into her right shoulder, Webster resumed his infernal scratching. The dog whined and cried. Did it sense what was occurring here? Did Mary's remains sing a chemical song that told Webster, her near constant companion, she was lying dead and bloody in the bathtub? The man didn't think so. Webster had no way of knowing she'd been poisoned, nor had the dog seen him carry her lifeless body into the bathroom. Webster was a Siberian husky, and the sense alone, the primitive sense of meat and blood, must have aroused the beast in him. Her right arm at last came free. Even in this form, it had a muscular, elegant shape. And that hand with slender fingers and clipped nails, the one that had pet her damned dog and held the blue inked ballpoint pens, would write no more. When I'm going good, she'd once said, it's like I'm not consciously thinking. I feel as if my arm is moving of its own volition, writing the story itself. And she'd spoken these words with a mixture of blitheness and arrogance that infuriated him. How could she have been so prolific yet precise while he had to grind and toil and nearly kill himself to produce any decent paragraphs? The dog's barking and scratching persisted outside the door. The man put the hacksaw down in the tub. How long had he been in here? Over an hour? He stood up and wiped the perspiration off his brow with his forearm. God damn you, Webster! You're driving me nuts! He walked past the toilet and sink, crossing the tiled floor. Webster howled as if baying at the moon, the atavistic beast. He would grab its collar and drag it down the hall and lock it in the bedroom. Only when he'd finished his job and cleaned up the tub would he release it. Then he'd give it to one of his friend's children, since it had been his wife's pet more than it was his. She'd been the one to feed it and take it outside for walks, giving it all the fucking attention that should have gone to him. Okay, Webster, I'm here, boy. Calm down. He opened the door and bent over. Using both hands, he reached out for the dog's collar, but it backed down the hallway slowly, in a semi-crouch, its thick white fur rippling in agitation. You son of a bitch, get over here! Suddenly it growled, flashing its teeth and snapped at his groping fingers. He jumped backwards. His hand shot up above his head, the left one, his thumb, flecked with blood, and Webster bounded past him. He spun around shrieking and saw the dog run into the bathroom. Tail waving, Webster leaped over the side of the tub. The man stopped short at the bathroom's entrance, and the two of them stood glaring at each other, the dog with its jaws spread and teeth visible, its mouth flecked with saliva, he with a frown of shock on his face. 
he could feel himself trembling. In the dog's eyes, there was a fixed black gleam. In its hunched posture above his wife's torso, there was a displayed protectiveness. A four-legged family member guarding its beloved master. Its silver ears were stiff. The hair on its massive frame bristled. From deep within its heaving chest came a barely audible growl, like the ominous thunder before a rainstorm. It lowered its head gradually, and when it lifted it a second later, lips parted and tongue revealed, he could see yet more saliva. It looked ready to attack and eat him. Had it turned rabid? The man didn't recall it showing any symptoms of the disease, but never before had it acted so crazily. He stood rigid in the doorway, heart pounding, hands balled into fists, his eyes searching the room for an object he could use as a weapon. Webster, get out of here now! He'd hollered, but the words sounded idiotic to him, ineffectual. The one thing he sought to defend himself with was the wooden-handled plunger standing behind the toilet, but he knew he wouldn't reach it before the dog reached him. And what good would it be? Webster snarled and lowered his head again, and the man braced for a rush. He felt sure the dog would leap at his throat and rip him apart. Motherfucker, he didn't want to die this way. He heard a slurping noise, a distinct crunch, and the dog's head rose with an arm in its mouth. It held the limb horizontally, like a bone, and the hand drooped rather daintily at the wrist. The man gaped for an instant. He felt dizzy. When the dog did jump out of the tub, he kicked at its face with his right foot, but it turned left and ducked its head, scampering under his raised leg. The man flipped up into the air and in the mirror above the sink. Before he landed on his buttocks, he caught a glimpse of his mortified countenance. Pain, a searing bolt of pain shot up his spine. His thighs tingled. He muttered a curse and pushed his body off the floor with his hands. The dog had sprinted around a corner at the far end of the hallway, and on legs half numb he gave chase, running down the corridor, turning the same corner and dashing past the rocking chairs in the living room. Webster entered the kitchen through an arched passage. He followed, wheezing, and saw the dog spring onto the counter beside the sink. He thought he had Webster trapped, but then he noticed the green curtain window above the sink. It was open. He ran across the kitchen, swearing, desperate to grab the dog's tail, fur, anything. But Webster, the arm in his mouth, squeezed through the open space. The man groaned. He smashed his left hand against his thigh. The quickest way outside was through the door to his left past a table, and he wasted no time in getting to it. The dog, a silvery streak in the summer darkness, had already crossed the backyard, finding cover in the woods. He plunged into the mass of trees as well, but without any moon or other light to guide him, he couldn't see where he was going. He tripped over an exposed root and fell into a clump of sticker bushes. Damn it! Crazy animal! Blackberry brambles tore into his shirt, his forearms, and the back of his hands. The blood he felt trickling on his skin now was his own. Webster! He called. Webster, come back here, damn you! 
he wriggled through the bushes and out into the coolness of the crabgrass. Webster! Webster! If he got his hands on that dog, he'd kill it. He'd cut it up and bury it with Mary. Those two deserved to lie on the ground together. The man got up and kept calling the husky's name, but the answer he received was the chirping of crickets. Gnats buzzed around his face, attracted to his perspiration, and mosquitoes landed on his neck and arms. He itched all over. A huge owl flew past his head, settling in the bushes above him, and somewhere nearby a cat screeched. In the darkness, he saw vague shapes and the occasional glint of a rodent's eyes. He was, he reminded himself, standing in the peaceful and affluent area of Riverdale, New York, in a long belt of woods that sloped down toward the Hudson River. But the dog's behavior and their fight for the arm made him imagine he had somehow gone back in time, struggling for survival in a primeval forest. The dog could come at him from any direction, and he wouldn't know it until it was too late. This was the animal's territory, not his. Why fight here? This was ridiculous. He had to retreat, go back to the house, and pray the dog eventually came back. Don't lose it, he told himself. Webster will return. Has to. His food's there. He collected himself, waiting for his heartbeat to slow down. About Webster, he had many questions all of them related to the stolen arm. Did the dog intend to eat it immediately? Would it bury the arm in the woods and dig it up later? Either of these actions, by disposing of the arm, would help him. But what if Webster loped down the street with the thing in his mouth? That could hardly go unnoticed. Someone would be bound to stop him and wrench it free from his jaws. An expert would take the hand's fingerprints and matched them with the prints that his wife, a one-time high school teacher, had given the city over 20 years ago. All that work in the bathtub would go for naught. People would remember him as the wife murderer who'd been captured by her pet. Despite himself, he felt hysteria rising again. He whirled round and marched out of the woods and back to the house. Neither the white linoleum floor in the kitchen nor the wooden floor in the hallway had any bloodstains on it so he assumed that the arm had bled itself dry in the tub. Strange that none of the blood had been left, but he sighed with relief to think that no droplets would be found in the yard or woods, and he did still have the rest of his wife's body. He just wished he knew whether Webster was eating the arm, cuddling with it, bringing it back, or burying it. He needed to know what the dog would do, and feared he couldn't calm himself till he did. Back in the bathroom, he stood beside the tub. As he gazed down, he realized he had two things in his favor. One was that Webster had a ravenous appetite. The other, he had neglected to feed the animal today. The murder and his work on the corpse had preoccupied him. Maybe Webster had behaved so aggressively out of hunger. When his empty stomach had growled and his sharp nose had smelled the blood, he'd reverted to a point of savagery. He'd probably snatch the arm for food, nothing more. After devouring his meal in the woods, he would return to the house, all docile and friendly. Better, the cyanide present in the arm's tissue might poison him. It was conceivable that Webster would eat Mary's arm and die. Optimism took hold of the man, 
he decided to complete his task. The dog was on its own, beyond its control, and it would serve no purpose to abandon his project now. With a little luck, he could still succeed in getting away with it. The next few hours saw him working strenuously. He finished his labors in the bathtub and made four trips to the cellar. Here, during the afternoon, after he'd poisoned and killed Mary, he had dug a hole in the dirt floor. The digging had proved difficult because the ground was packed hard from years of use. But with the aid of a pick and shovel, he managed to scoop out lots of soil. Now he squeezed four plastic bags into the hole, stripped and put in his clothes, and he shoveled dirt back into the hole, tamping it down with the head of the pick. Tired and sore, drenched with sweat, he went back upstairs to the bathroom, and in quick succession, he washed off the hacksaw, rinsed the tub with bleach, showered, and cleaned the tub again. He expelled air, chest aching. His efforts demanded a glass of red wine, and after he'd put on his pajamas, he drank one. He fell into bed and lay in the dark, eyes staring at the spider web of shadows on the ceiling. It felt odd to be lying on the mattress without his wife beside him, but he was glad to have the bed to himself, and he knew he'd be safe as long as the dog didn't ruin him. He had left the kitchen window open in case Webster returned during the night but he took the precaution of closing his bedroom door. Could that arm really kill Webster? Eat it, he whispered. Eat it. All he could do was hope the animal died in the woods overnight, or at worst, that he'd wake up to find Webster in the house. His eyes opened in the stream of sunlight coming through the window. He rolled over to kiss his wife on the cheek, but then he recalled the previous morning's events, the moment he'd slipped the poison into her tea. The minute she choked and squirmed on the kitchen floor while he, standing over her, told her his plans to bury her body in the cellar. He walked out into the kitchen and heard a gravelly sneeze. His heart twitched, as if he bumped into a live wire. But he saw it was Webster sleeping in the living room. The dog was on the small orange carpet it sometimes used for a mattress. Its forepaws were tucked under its head. Its back rose and fell with each of its heavy breaths. Webster looked healthy, no ill effects from the cyanide. But also, and this was terrific, satiated. The man grinned. He yawned and stretched his arms. Fuck it. He was done worrying about the stupid dog. Today was the start of his second life, his disciplined life. He would drink less and eat healthier foods. He might even do daily calisthenics. Most importantly, he would embark on a strict writing schedule. Yes, he'd write every morning for five to six hours, and in a few months' time, after he'd finally wrapped up his perennial novel in progress, he would start on a story collection. His wife had written short stories, so why shouldn't he? The day passed. The man wrote and did the vacuuming, he replaced a light bulb. Throughout everything, he kept an eye on Webster, observing the dog, growing uncomfortable as he studied its movements. Webster kept switching his behavior. At times he would pace around the house, huffing and puffing. Then he'd halt and lie down. He would lounge in various rooms with open eyes, 
never seeming to quite fall asleep. He'd merely lie there. Then without warning, he'd hop up and pace some more, back and forth, through the living room, the kitchen, the bedroom. What the hell was he doing? Though the man offered Webster food, putting a bowl in its regular spot in the boiler room, Webster ignored it. He didn't so much as approach and sniff the canned beef chunks. With Webster lying in the hallway outside his bedroom door, the man placed a strip of raw hide by him, only to see it lay there, untouched. Rawhide was a particular treat that Webster savored, so this apparent indifference toward it puzzled the man. Everything about Webster had become unnatural. Gone seemed to be the madness of the night before, yet this was a different dog than the one that had been so close to Mary. When she was alive, Webster had paid him no mind. Webster had stuck with Mary, tagging behind her both inside the house and out. Today, for the first time ever, Webster trailed on his heels. But whatever room the man walked into, the dog would stop at the threshold. It would emit a low yelp and plunk down on its belly. Eyes open, head on its paws. It would watch him, a sentry by that door. Was Webster guarding him from danger or trying to keep him in? The man began to wonder what the dog would do if he tried to leave the house. Nothing, he told himself. What am I thinking? Webster's just a dog. For his part, the man didn't need either. Tension wouldn't let him. The churning in his stomach. Mary was gone, as he wanted, but Webster's steady vigilance made relaxation impossible. He could not sleep that night and the next. Though he kept his bedroom door shut, was no improvement. Lying there, he could hear Webster breathing in the hall, patting around, howling. The howls seemed plaintive, mournful. Or was he ascribing human emotions to Webster? He would open his door, but the dog would run away down the hall. Then it would stop, turn, sit and face him. It would lock its eyes with his. As soon as he closed the door and resettled himself in bed, the dog would walk back over and shove its rump or head against the door. He would hear that howling. Afraid he might break down and cry, the man had to turn up the television to block out the sounds. Groggy, he had trouble keeping clear what came next in his plan. Call. Make the calls. Begin the process. But he was exhausted. The hellish dog had kept him tossing and turning two nights in a row. Would he screw the charade up? He had to go through with it. On the third morning, he launched, deciding it was time to contact her friends. He telephoned the ones whose numbers he had in his directory. Yes, he kept saying. I'm very worried. She's been gone three days without a word. I'd appreciate it. Thanks. His voice sounded anxious, but not panic-stricken. He phoned her agent and her editor, and on hearing the news that she disappeared, each of them said they were worried. She never went on unannounced trips, they both said. As if he wouldn't have known, she was not the sort of writer who periodically vanished on mysterious adventures. That's true, the man said, quite true. 
and he told them he'd searched her closets and drawers. Our wardrobe looked intact, he admitted, and her writing material was still neatly arranged, as it always was, on her desk. The man waited, enduring more agony. He felt like he was moving through mist. Would sleep ever come? He thought it might not. On the bright side, Webster's surveillance eased. The dog stopped shadowing him and ate the rawhide strip on the floor. And he was able to fix himself a sandwich, ham with yellow mustard, and drink several glasses of water. It dawned on him that he was dehydrated and needed the fluids to stave off delirium. On the fourth morning after the murder, he telephoned the police. He gave a description of his wife, stating his fear that she'd been a victim of foul play. And in the afternoon, a detective arrived at the house, a soft-spoken fellow in a blue suit. The detective asked him general questions about his wife, taking notes on a pad and asked to see their bedroom so he could examine her things. He was going through her closet when Webster barged into the room, tongue hanging out, panting with excitement, and at once the detective stiffened. He held up his arms. Did he too, the man wondered, dislike dogs? Without provocation, Webster gently nipped at the detective's legs. Webster, cried the man, what's wrong with you? But the big white husky continued to harass the detective, nudging his calves with his snout, pushing him toward the hall. Webster's body was vibrating. He looked happy as a pup with a new toy. The detective, laughing nervously, walked out of the room, and before the man could apologize for the dog's behavior, Webster bolted out from behind the men and ran past them down the corridor. Webster looked back at both of them and made a left turn into the man's wife's study. That's where Mary does her writing, the man said. The policeman nodded and entered the room. It was tidy, but crammed with an oak desk, bookshelves and flower pots along the walls, two shaded lamps and a laptop on a stand in the corner. Since the killing, the man had lacked a reason to step in here, but he told the detective the same thing he told her agent and her editor. I didn't find anything in these drawers, I mean, aside from her usual writing stuff. The detective grunted and stared at the dog. Webster, in a crouched position, was using his left leg to poke the lower left-hand drawer in the desk. Webster licked the brass handle and his nose quivered. He let out a high-pitched wail that hurt the man's ears. Is he always like this? The detective asked. No, the man answered. I haven't... It's not like him. He hunched down to find out what was making Webster curious. His stomach was contracting into a knot. He repressed a desire to scream, trying to keep at arm's length from the dog, cringing with a sense of horrible expectation. He slid open the bottom left-hand drawer, and then he froze, a horrified expression on his face. The policeman, standing behind him, looked over his shoulder. In the drawer was the arm Webster had taken. Colored green and purple, it had decomposed since the man last saw it, and its bruised fingers held a blue ballpoint pen. A sheaf of lined white paper lay beneath it, and on the top page, in his wife's unmistakable handwriting, these words were written.
on August 15th, 2015, my husband poisoned me. He put cyanide in my tea at breakfast, and as I lay on the kitchen floor writhing, he had the rank egotism to declare that he would dismember my corpse and bury it in the cellar floor. The following memoir, dedicated to my faithful dog, is about the decline of our marriage and the unfortunate way it concluded. It is titled, Now I Can Rest in Peace. And although I wrote it over two days and nights, it should be counted among my finest work. It will also have to be my literary swan song, as my trusted right arm, once so tireless, feels a bit off these days. My husband knows how to contact my agent and publisher. The End Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy tales in their ears every other week. If you want new stories every week, the only way for that to happen is to join the Nightlight Legion by going to nightlightpod.com legion. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal at nightlightpod.com donate. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Give us a shout-out online on Twitter, TikTok, or Instagram at NightlightPod, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ransompodcasts. Reviews are also a huge help, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. Audio production for this episode by Davis Walden, who has a story in the newly released Salt, Sand, and Blood, an anthology of sea horror. Check out the show notes for a link. Join us next time, and be sure to leave your nightlight on. You never know what might be waiting for you in the dark. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.